Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. And we have a great show for you. Uh, we are here live with uh, Sally Morgan, who is who does craniosacral uh, therapy for pets. Uh, so welcome, Sally. Oh, thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. So Sally, tell us who you are and, and what you do. Well, um, my name is Sally Morgan, and I have a private practice called Holistic Physical Therapy for Pets and People. And um, I am a certified craniosacral therapist as well as a physical therapist. And I offer a variety of modalities for my clients, including craniosacral, which I personally developed for use with animals, um, something called Tellington T-Touch, which is the work of Linda Tellington. I'm a Reiki practitioner for people and animals. I do emotion code work. I'm a certified yoga instructor, and I'm an author of an Amazon bestseller called Dances of the Heart, Connecting with Animals. You've done a lot. You've got all kinds of good stuff going on. Uh, well, it's, I've used all of it to work with animals. Um, as you may know, when you work with animals, it's kind of like working with children. You're working with the whole system, which includes the animal, the animal's family, the animal's particular caretaker, and whatever happened in the animal's past before he came to live with that family. So um, you need a lot of skills to reach all aspects of that uh, circle around the pet. So what inspired you to start doing physical therapy and all of these techniques with animals specifically? Well, I had a horse named Tenpenny Moonshine who... Tenpenny Moonshine, I love it. Oh, yeah. I know. It was a great name, and he had a moon on his head. And uh, I searched all over to find a horse, and I wanted a thoroughbred. I wanted to do jumping and competing like I had as a kid. And I just couldn't find a thoroughbred who was sound. So I ended up with this Morgan. Um, and he was really difficult. Um, many, many, many issues with training him. He had dropped out of uh, horse training school with several other people before he ended up in my care. And he became affectionately known as Burgers when uh, he was so difficult. And I was trying to teach him to do something that um, I now have learned is not such a good thing to do with horses. Uh, trotting him in circles at the end of a rope. And I got so frustrated. I just said, if you don't do this for me, you're going to end up as horse burgers because he was so hard to work with. Nobody else would take him on. And I just burst out laughing and he ran right over to me. And after that, we had a long 35 year relationship, but he continued to have training problems or so-called training problems. Um, and I ended up through uh, connections with friends and fellow riders, working with a dressage trainer out in Berkshire County where I was living, which was a whole different way of riding than I had known in my childhood. I had done um, rodeo riding and I had done, you know, hunters and jumpers and uh, competitive trail riding with my Arabians, but I had not done dressage or three day, which is so popular in New England. And I had an instructor that I thought was quite good who it turned out to be was 
the worst instructor I could have possibly worked with. And also the luckiest thing that's probably ever happened to me. <laughs> she got very frustrated with him one day and there was a whole horrible scene and she stormed out of the ring and refused to work with me anymore. And my horse was in terrible trouble. And on her way out, she yelled at me and said, take your horse to work with Linda Tellington and you can go ride with the uh, Olympic dressage instructor up the road, but I'm through with both of you and your horse is hopeless. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> That's kind of aggressive. That's a very aggressive thing to say to someone and their, yeah, and their animal. Yeah, we were all a lot younger then. Okay. <laughs> so I was in my mid-20s and she's probably around that same age. Uh, you know, just the whole world of riding at that time was very different. You know, it was very punitive and very, you know, do what I say and you know, even the dressage instructor I worked with, her way of teaching at the time was to tell you just once, you know, your hands are moving and then you had to figure out how to fix that. And now, you know, there's a whole analysis going on. Like, why are your hands moving? How is your saddle fitting? Why are you out of balance? But that was not in the <laughs> the usual kind of teaching we were doing in the 80s. So, so what um, was- I came home Oh, go ahead. What? Um, what was what was Linda Tellington doing differently um, that other other trainers weren't? Well, I came home after this horrible experience, and my then husband said, "All right, well, let's go to those people and get some help." And that was quite a big undertaking for him because he had to teach all of my classes at the boarding school where we were and take over all of my dorm duties for weeks several weeks which no one has ever done yeah. for anyone i'm sure well he and left I went you off to, New yeah. to, work, to work with linda and the first thing that we did the first day was sit in a circle and talk in this beautiful beautiful place that's now uh, no longer a horse facility and we brought out the horses and introduced them and you know linda has evolved a lot in the last 40 years as well but at the time one of the things that she did that was different was really look at each horse as an individual and look deeply at them. And she looked at my horse, Burgers, and said to me, Burgers is very intelligent, which no one had ever said to me. And it just shifted me immediately to look at him in a whole new way. And, you know, as I've learned over these 40 years, mostly when animals are doing what we don't want them to do, it's because we don't understand them. They are screaming at us with everything they have to listen to them and to understand them. And we just misunderstand them so incredibly. And that can be quiet screaming or loud screaming like my horse was doing. And so during that three weeks working with Linda, I just learned a whole new way to work with animals where you really listen to them with your soul and with your heart and you see their soul and their heart and you learn to make connections with them and so the understanding between you grows so deep that you literally just have to think in your mind what you want to do and your horse is already two steps ahead of you wow and it's a whole different approach to riding even now there is no one doing what linda has been doing and she's in her 80s and still teaching and traveling and is uh, an incredible inspiration and so you know working with linda for many years just changed how I think about the world and our relationships with animals. And years later, when I got injured, I went to a physical therapist who was a craniosacral therapist. And we would talk about animals because she liked animals. And it turned out that a lot of the things I was doing with body work with T-Touch were similar to the things she was doing on me. And she just jokingly said, oh, you should go to PT school and do what I do so you can be a cranial practitioner. 
And that is exactly what I did. So it was another incident where someone randomly said something that changed the rest of my life. Um, and so I went to my first cranial class and I was, as Linda talks about going to Feldenkrais, which inspired her work um, and how she could bring that work to animals. I was sitting there in this cranial class looking at the bones of the skull, desperate to get a detailed look at a horse's skull right then and there to see what the effect of bridles and halters and lead lines and ropes were on the skull bones of the horse and what was going on to make them so uncomfortable when we work with them that they do these behaviors that you know are crying out for help but that we see as like naughty or difficult or you know stubborn or whatever um, so from that moment, from that first class on the first morning, uh, the, my all cranial classes that I took were focused specifically on how can I bring this to work with horses and then dogs and cats and rabbits and other animals. So it was really, it was really your passion for your own animals that kind of, that, that led you through this pathway. Well, yes, that and my passion for all animals, because I felt you know, I was not a backyard bad animal person. I was a very successful um, horse shower and trainer for many years with dogs and horses. And, you know, I was just astounded at how much I didn't know and what I didn't understand. And I was, you know, pretty top in my field. And so I became passionate about helping every other person that has an animal in his or her life to understand them better. And to be able to make a deeper connection with them, because that's why we have animals. Animals connect us to the natural world, and we are as desperate as they are for the depth of connection that we can have with our pets and our horses. Of course, and they're members of our family. You know, they want to connect with us, like you said. So that's right. They live to, for that. So you were you were mentioning a moment ago. Um, how the the bridles and how um, all of the sort of equipment that goes across the horse's uh, face and skull, um, how what does that look like um, as a craniosacral practitioner working with a horse? Like where where are all those points being hit uh, for the for the horse on their skull? Well, um, all the bones in the skull move and they all have a, a rhythm they follow. And in America, this is considered very unusual because we learn um, and have for centuries uh, through a book called Gray's Anatomy, which talks about the bones as somewhat fused. But in Europe, um, they teach with a, a book called Spinoza's Anatomy, which does talk about movement in those bones and that they aren't fused. And so seeing that those bones move, anytime we put anything around them to compress them, we inhibit movement. And for instance, the most obvious thing, and this is true for humans too, that wear tight hairbands or earphones that go over their head or scars or hats, you know, the bones under your ears are very complicated, the temporal bones, and they are, they have a rotational motion forward and back. They have sort of a blossoming motion out to the sides. And then they also have a lateral motion where they're moving, you know, both to the left or both to the right. And if you put pressure on them for any length of time to interrupt the craniosacral rhythm, which is for humans, six to 12 cycles per minute and, you know, slower for bigger, longer spines like a horse and shorter for like a little chihuahua. Anytime you put pressure on those bones and inhibit that motion, you're going to create restrictions, not only in the bones themselves, but in the 
membranes around the skull and all the way down through the spinal cord. And in particular, the temporal bones are related to the hips. And so if you restrict the motion in, let's say, the right temporal bone, you will see either a reciprocal or lateral restriction in a hip as a result of this over time. So you'll get a horse with a patella problem, which is in their hind legs, and they'll be limping, and they may have a hip problem on that side. But unless you um, have somebody like me who's a cranial person, you can fix that hip and put ultrasound on it and do this and do that. But until you get that temporal bone moving correctly, you will not be able to correct anything moving in that hip and have it maintained. So craniosacral is super important for horses. Oh, wow. Can you? And this goes with dogs, too. I mean, all the restrictions we put um, on them with collars and a lot of dogs, you know, most dogs are all shorter than us and they spend their whole lives looking up, which really compresses the, um, the bones between the occiput, the base of the skull and C1 and a lot of the nerves to the eyes. And so we can have dogs with really severe behavior problems just because they can't see us clearly Mm. um, from the way that they've been walked or the way that people have worked with them. Can you can you describe what a what a typical cranio session looks like um, from your perspective as well as somebody who is maybe just just looking? Um, what is what does a cranio session session look like with animals? Well, the easiest one to describe is with a cat, which people think is so funny. First of all, they don't really like bringing their cats to my house. Um, until cats they get, get very stressed seat. out when they have to go places. <laughs> That's right. They People are very protective of their cats going to the vet and other places. So there's always a lot of commotion about bringing the cat here and they have to bring him in this box and it has to be a box we can take the lid off and they have their little blankie. And cats are very energetic creatures. Um, you know, a dog or a horse wants to relate with you more than particularly a cat would like that's the first motivation of a dog or a horse but a cat is more relating to energy so once you bring the cat in here and I have a room with um, glass doors on it and we go in that room and the cat's in his basket and his mom is petting him on the head and I put my hands on his sacrum and they just start purring or fall asleep or stretch out and all of the things that people think they're going to do trying to escape and run around the room all of that goes out the window and the cat really just falls asleep. Hmm. And it's so interesting, particularly working with cats, because as I move my hands over their body, they kind of reposition themselves in their little boxes so that it's a little easier for me to get my hand somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they'll move a little leg to push my hand to a spot where they really want attention, where they think I might forget something. So working with them is really fascinating. And a session takes about an hour and I often will do several modalities. I almost always start with cranial work. Um, If I have a really stressed out dog, I get a lot of people that come here with rescue dogs after they've had a life with sort of an old lab that was sort of like a carpet and never moved. And now they've got this dog that's supposed to be part lab, but really isn't and is bouncy and young and pulling and barking and biting and chewing and all the things that their dog never did. (laughs) So with a dog like that, the first things I will do usually is T-touch. So we'll do some T-touch body work on the person because usually they're very upset and embarrassed that their dog isn't behaving the way they would like him to. Mm. Um, So I do the touches on the person, teach them how to do them on the dog, and then the dog usually calms down. Sometimes we have to use a Tellington T-touch wrap 
which is an ACE bandage, usually three or four inches wide. And there's many different ways we can put it around the dog. People are familiar with thunder shirts, which were developed from T-touch wraps. And the wrap helps the dog calm down so that his nervous system can then take in the information of the other work. So So once he can sit still a little bit, we move on to cranial work. And almost always, um, you know, they calm down and fall asleep as well. And usually by the end of the session, I will do some work with tuning forks or chiropractic work if that's required. Um, And then I also usually work with a pendulum at the end of the session just to see if there's any restrictions I missed anywhere in the pet's body. Hmm. And it's the same for a horse. I mean, they, I don't like to tie them. I like the person to hold them. Usually the person can just sit there with them. Um, And similarly, they tune into the energy. They're very energetic beings as well. And they just sort of relax and, you know, yawn and sleep. And I've had many horses lay down when I'm working on them um, or right after I work on them. So it's really, it's fascinating. And one of the great things about cranial work is you never get bored doing it because every session is different. Hmm. Everything you feel in a body is not the same as what you felt last time. Now, when you're when you're doing cranial work, and if you're just tuning in, we're chatting with Sally Morgan, who is a physical therapist for pets as well as for people. Um, when you're doing cranial work, uh, for wh- what are you feeling for when you're working on an animal? Like, what what are you feeling in there? Well, it depends on what level cranial practitioner you are. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this a very long time. I took my first class in 1991, oh, so. Wow. Um, and I've worked with thousands of humans and animals over the years. But that you usually, you know, the, the, the textbook answer is you tune into the craniosacral rhythm, which is the movement of the spinal fluid from the brain to the sacrum and then back to the brain. And as I said, that happens in a cycle of 6 to 12 um, cycles per minute for a human and longer with a longer spinal cord and shorter with a shorter spinal cord. Is the cycle um, all- from skull to hips all the way back up yeah you feel these waves moving through the body and so but the other thing you tune into because there's many techniques in cranial work um are tension patterns in the body um you that you also tune into something we call energy cysts which is sort of like if you throw um a stone into a pond and the ripples come out that energy cyst might be where that stone went in. And so you feel these arcs of energy coming around that. And sometimes it's physical, it's not just energy. And that would be what we call the primary area of restriction is right where that stone feeling is. Mm. So um, like a chiropractor or an acupuncturist who can follow the protocol for, let's say, you know, poor liver chi, you could just do the 10 step protocol from cranial one. But if you understand the deeper layers, you can go to where that energy cyst is or that primary restriction and work in a way throughout the body to balance that system. And that will get you some profound changes quickly. That sounds great. So I wanted to circle back to something that you were talking about earlier when when you're working with animals. You know, you, you started talking about how you work with the animal's person as well as their sort of family and, you know, as, as well as their past emotional experiences. Um, what, how do you understand the relationship with the animal and their, and their person? What, what, why, do you, um, why is that important to work on that relationship? Well, animals want to do what we would like them to do. They live in our homes or we spend hours a day with them. 
and they are trying really hard um, to get us to understand them. And so a lot of my work is helping people see that when their dog is barking at them, that he's trying to say something. He isn't just barking. <laughs> and so, or, you know, they're one of the interesting correlations I found between people and animals. And you can see when somebody's riding a horse that if the horse has a problem with his left hip, there's a pretty good chance the person is probably going to have a problem with their left hip or possibly diagonally on the other side, depending on who's good at balancing the other. Hmm. So what I saw initially, and this was particularly true with cats, so many people were coming that had a problem with one of their shoulders and their cat did too. And, you know, cats jump and things, but a cat is built very differently from a human. And typically a shoulder problem wouldn't be necessarily the first thing you'd look for with a cat. But a lot of animals take on our physical and emotional issues. And so if you don't look at the whole system, um, you're going to miss a lot of things that need to be addressed in order to maintain the health of the entire system. So, for instance, um, people that get rescued pets, they may have heard a terrible story about that pet before they had the pet. And they can't let go emotionally of to what has happened to that pet in the past, even though the pet may be young and happy and love his new home and not be having a problem um, adjusting to his new life. So one of the things I work with is flower essences. Um, there's a company called Botanical Animal that makes specific flower essences to use with pets and their people. And so there's one called Angel of Mercy that might be particularly useful for a pet that has been rescued and is having a hard time adjusting and in many cases, uh, the person and the animal benefit from using that flower essence in order to get over the trauma um, that has been in their past so that they can go on to make a deeper connection. And, you know, like I said before, everyone wants a deep connection with their animals. And a lot of people think they have that, but they don't really because they're imposing their will on the animal and they're not really seeing what the animal's needs are one of the things that I created was um, a deck of cards um, called Animal Connection Cards. And there's 52 of them so that you can do one thing a week with your pet. And this would apply to a horse, a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a guinea pig, a hamster, whatever your animal is. And over the course of a year, you do a card a week and you can actually let your pet pick them out of the pile. Mm -hmm. And those exercises are developed specifically to change the way you look at your pet and your relationship with your pet. Um, for instance, some of them are about like meditating with your pet, taking a walk with your dog where you are not in charge of the walk. The dog is. Let him decide which way to go. I've been on some walks with dogs like that. 10 minutes, <laughs> let him sniff it for 10 minutes. <laughs> if your rabbit wants to hop around the house and, you know, chew on the furniture, well, you have to not let them do that. But, you know, let the rabbit go where he wants to go. Um, take him for a little trip outside on the deck or something, you know, and the same with cats. I mean, there's so many things that cats do. Um, that like looking outside at the birds, what if you take an interest in that bird as much as the cat is and watch how your cat looks at you and he sees that you're actually paying attention to the cardinal at the bird feeder the same way he is. Um, other things, you know, if your dog barks 
and while you're playing with him, you know, bark back at him. And if he barks twice, you bark twice. And so <laughs> you're really communicating with him. And they look at you like, oh, my God, she finally got it. Like, I, you know, it's like the dolphin trainer looking at the dolphin when they finally, you know, put their nose over the hoop. I mean, the cat looks at you like, wow, I finally got them to understand that. Mm. And I've, I've had rabbits for many years. And thank God for them because... You know, nobody thinks of a rabbit as an animal that you interact with, really, especially in the 80s when I first had my bunnies. But I didn't have a dog and I didn't have a horse. And it was the first time in my life I didn't have an animal like that. And I could only have pet rabbits. And so I taught them to play catch with me. I taught them to do tricks. I taught them to go on walks with a leash, which lots of people do with their rabbits now. But I was amazed every day at how smart they were and how different their personalities were. And it was just coming from doing simple things with them. One of the great things in my deck of cards that you can do with your animal, you know, everybody thinks that they all like things that they might not like. So uh, it's called the treat parade. And you put out a bunch of different foods, like seven or eight. And this could apply to cats or dogs or guinea pigs or even your horse. And see which one he goes for first. And, you know, let him in where they are and just see which one he likes. And try that several times. Put them in different orders. And pretty soon you'll start to see which one your animal really prefers. And once you know what that is, you have, it's like opening a language. To, you know, you can start to communicate with them and say, okay, you want the duck treat? Then I'd like you to walk between my legs and then I'll give you the duck treat. <laughs> or, and that works with dogs and horses and cats and every animal. And for instance, you know, everybody thinks horses like apples and carrots. I had a horse that did not like carrots. My dog now does not like carrots. All of my prior dogs have eaten tons of carrots. This dog that I have now really only likes meat. He will not eat anything that has too much vegetable or carbohydrate in it. He's a real carnivore. Um, and cats are really interesting because there's all kinds of things they like to eat that people don't think about giving them. Um, and there's plenty of products out there now that you can try to feed your cats. So giving them like little bits of meat and fish and seeing which one they prefer can really help you start to work with a cat. I mean, my niece has, she's working on me, you know, obviously her whole life. And she, um, as a child had miniature horses and horses that she was riding and dogs and cats and guinea pigs and hamsters. And we did tea touch work with all of them. And so now when she has cats, she's got like 20 pound giant big cats mostly. And they all do tricks. They all shake hands, give their paw, roll over, sit up. And most people don't think of ever trying to teach their cat to do tricks. But it's a way that they can communicate with each other and interact with each other. And, you know, one of the cats is a particular friend of a guinea pig she had. And she could let the guinea pig hop around the kitchen. And that one cat would, you know, respond to her when she told him to not chase the guinea pig, which I think is pretty significant considering how much the cat wanted to chase the guinea pig yep. and so she would redirect him and teach him all these tricks to keep him from eating the guinea pig because she was only home a few hours a day and she often was working during those hours so the animals had to all be out playing together and she couldn't just have like guinea pig hour and then kitty hour so right. she had this interaction with the cat that was really amazing and he's an amazing cat you know the the thing is, when you allow them to express their full personalities, there's so much more to them than what we really know. And that's the system of T-Touch training, which involves the wraps I talked about, body work, um, something we call the confidence course or the playground for higher learning, which is sort of different obstacles that help them feel their body in a new way. And then intention, 
is the fourth part of T-Touch, which we talk about. But when you start to let them be trained or influenced, as we say, in this gentle way, you can see them in a whole new way because they can express their personalities and they can say, you know what, I'm walking on this ladder, but I'm really afraid and I'm not happy about it. Mm. You know, other people would just drag their pet through and say, oh, he did the ladder. He's fine. Right. But he's not fine. You know, he was traumatized on the first step. He didn't know where to put his four feet to feel safe. And if you recognize that, and usually we do the body work with them and allow them to step out of it, you know, they suddenly trust you in a way that they didn't before because you are listening to them. Right. You know, it's it's interesting because so many of the things that you've talked about, um, you know, with the with the Tellington T-Touch, um, as well as these practices of learning to understand how you know, animals communicate and learning to listen in a different way. It reminds me so much of how the um, how we educate children, right? Like yes. this, it sounds yes. like it. It sounds like almost the way that the this language of how we communicate with animals has also evolved around the same time that we uh, have changed our school systems and the way that we teach. You know, obviously, very much so. Many T Touch practitioners, like me at the time, I was a teacher. Many of us are teachers. Many people now use T-Touch to work with special needs kids, in particular kids with autism. We have, um, there's a place called Horse Boy Ranch in Texas where we've done several workshops. Um, that guy wrote you know, a book called Horse Boy about how working with horses and riding horses really helped his son with autism. And so we go there and we teach T-Touch and work with T-Touch, a lot of those kids don't like to be touched, and yet they can tolerate the circles that we do for T-Touch. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes from being present in a different way, um, because you're not violating someone's trust when you're coming to be with them instead of at them. Right, right. You're letting them give you permission or not. Exactly. <laughs> Do you ever have any animals um, that you're working with that that say, no, thank you, I don't want cranial work, or I don't want the, the Tellington T-Touch? Um, do you ever have any animals that you're there to work with that are like, no, thanks? No, I've never had one like that. Um, they, they almost always, you know, I see animals that are near the end of their life, uh, animals with behavior problems, animals with pain. So almost always they really, really need something. Um, and their person has been attentive enough to know that they needed something and to seek alternative uh, treatments besides just going to the vet or a trainer. So the animals I see are generally, you know, they may be wary at first, but they are so relieved. And one of the things that's amazing about T-Touch and craniosacral therapy, they both work on the central nervous system and they're both very, very, very light touches. Um, as Linda said one time of cranial work, she said, you know, you're kind of flying under the radar of the body's defense system because you're so light. And, you know, if you're doing like deep Swedish massage, you know, the person may tense their muscles against you because they're not letting that information in. But when you are so light, the body doesn't know what to do in terms of defense. And so you, it's sort of listening. It engages the body in a whole new way of saying, oh, that's interesting. What's that about? And so you can work because you're so light on a much deeper level than you could if you were using a deeper touch. And that is just so different from what people may have brought their animals to experience in other places or with other practitioners that they just really um, are so grateful. I, I've, I, you know, even the most difficult animals 
um, a lot of them don't want to leave me. Aww, with they, person. They're like, I love you. Stay here. We're, we're all happy. <laughs> and I've had such funny things people tell me, like when they bring their cat, you know, the first time they're always skeptical and the cat's thrilled and everything's great. And as they get closer to my house in the car, the cat will start meowing and scratching at his box because he's so happy to come here. Aww. And dogs will bark and run up the stairs and jump out of the car. So, I mean, it's really, it's interesting how they respond. I mean, they just, you know, I know that um, in my Reiki practice, um, you know, sometimes they'll say, no, I'm not so interested in this spot. But, you know, I have so many different modalities to offer that if something is not what the animal would like today, there's always something different. And I do a lot of work with tuning forks. And I had a friend's horse I worked with in Colorado. He had been left for about six weeks when she was moving in the care of someone she thought was great and they weren't so great. And the horse was a very sensitive thoroughbred. She had rescued from the track. He had many, many problems, long history, had done great with her for several years. Um, and he was never ridden. But when she went to get him after the six weeks, she couldn't even catch him. He was really emotionally and physically traumatized. And Aww. we still don't know what happened to him. And so she asked me if I would help her with him. And we put him, he was out in this square pen where he had been for weeks, apparently, because they couldn't get him. And I just went into the ring and started working on his chakras with the tuning forks. And I had all these advanced cranial people watching and some horse trainers. So it was really interesting to get the feedback from the people about what they were perceiving was going on. And I just worked through his chakras with the forks off his body, first not even directed towards him, but just in the area where he was to change the energy of his environment. And eventually I made my way over to him and um, animals have an eighth chakra over their heart that is about their connection to us. So if you go to that area with your hand, with your palm facing towards you so that you're not threatening them, they often will make a connection with you if you start there. So I just went up to the horse with my palm again facing me with my hand towards his shoulder. And he just sort of turned and leaned into me. Hmm. And everybody was crying at that point because this horse had been just so difficult. Nobody could catch him or do anything with him. And this person is a really advanced cranial person that I've trained and known for years. And she does lots of great work with horses. Um, and she was so grateful. And, you know, she had so much emotional baggage about what had happened to him that she couldn't really work with him objectively. Right. And that's why it's really important to have somebody else come in and to hold the space, um, as Linda says, for the potential for perfection, even if perfection can't be achieved. And so after that, we could do all the things that we knew for that horse. We could do body work on him and T-touch work and cranial work and, you know, um, put a rope around his neck to get him out of that area. Uh, we didn't put a halter on him for a couple of days. But, I mean, there's always some method that is, you know, more gentle or less invasive that you can use to reach an animal. And so often there's a case like that horse where you have to use everything you know in order to um, reach them. Absolutely. I would like to chat a little bit more about your book. Um, you have a memoir uh, called Dances of the Heart, connecting with animals about your hands-on healing work with animals and some of those important relationships that you've had along the way. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Um, as I said earlier, I felt that, you know, my passion 
really is helping people understand their animals better. And I thought that writing about my own journey to getting to that place would be useful for people to show them different things I tried or how things have developed over the years or, you know, um, like I said, with the rabbits I had, you know, most people don't think about playing with their rabbits, especially in 1987. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I thought people would find that interesting. And, you know, as I was saying about my niece with her cat, you know, you don't think about teaching your cat to come and do tricks, but they, they like that sometimes. I mean, not all cats do, but, you know, just like not all dogs do. But to relate to your animals in a new way, I felt it really important to bring them a book to show people um, how animals can be if we allow them to express who they fully are. Uh, my horse, obviously, is a big part of that book and my bunnies and my corgis. Um, but one of the most important things in that book is the work of my dog, Comet. I was a physical therapist and working with um, and that that I became a physical therapist because of my work with Tellington T-Touch. I started to see the relationship between um, issues in the body and training problems and pain in the body and training problems. And I became fascinated by it. So I shifted my career from teaching to being a physical therapist. And uh, in that work, I was working with many kids who have seizures because craniosacral is really good for that. And my dog, Winston, was coming to work with me. He was a therapy dog. And he would lay on the table with the kids. And often when you're bringing those temporal bones back into synchrony, um, the kid can have a seizure, which can be quite frightening to the mother yeah. who thinks that you're there to help them. Of course. <laughs> this kid may have the last seizure of his life, but the mom is not doesn't know that. And so Winston... I started to watch him and he started to right when that moment when those temporal bones are about to go into synchrony is that that moment and he would just lay on the child and like lick their cheek or just put his head against their face a little Aww. bit and calm them in a way that would make it so they didn't have a seizure wow so this happened repeatedly with many many people and I started to see what he was doing at some point, you know, I was smart enough to notice. And he ended up teaching my next dog, Comet, also a Corgi, how to do the same thing. And Winston did lots of other things. He loved to herd. He herded sheep, which is not typical for a Corgi. <laughs> um, and he did this healing work. But Comet was extraordinary. He was an extremely gifted healer. Like many, many people in healing practices, we should be so lucky to be as good as Comet. And Comet's work is so remarkable. And I, you know, he really went to his maximum potential in a way that I thought people would find compelling in a way to see what their dogs, uh, cats and horses and rabbits might offer them. And Comet had this way of checking a person on the table finding that place where the stone fell in the pond, pointing at that with his nose or his paw, sometimes barking, and then, you know, leaving the room sometimes, sometimes staying there and sleeping under the table, so-called sleeping, he was working. Mm -hmm. And then no matter what, when the session was over, he just like clockwork knew when about an hour was up and he would come and check the person over. And if there was anything that was left undone, he would make sure that you saw that. Absolutely. And finished the session. Oh, and so talented. He was so remarkable. We were in New Jersey. I work at my sister's office. She's a veterinarian. And a 
Silken Windhound dog was in there, and I hadn't worked with this one. The lady breeds them. There were quite a few that I'd seen, but not this one. And we didn't really know what was wrong with her. She had had some problems, but nothing huge. And I worked on her back. They're quite long dogs. They're kind of whippity. And uh, worked on her back and her shoulders. And there was, like, some stuff going on, but I didn't really see anything dramatic. And Comet just was literally pawing at her stomach and biting at her stomach in a particular area. And I said, I better get my sister. So my sister came in the room and saw this too. And I said, I think it's the pancreas. And she said, well, what's the dog's symptoms? And they weren't the frank symptoms we see of pancreatitis, you know, diarrhea and stuff. But we took the dog back, did a, a free x-ray for the owner because, you know, we're going on diagnosis of a corgi. <laughs> and the dog had severe pancreatitis. Like if Comet had not found it, the dog could have died. Oh, my gosh. Um, and we had to initiate a whole treatment protocol. And I worked on the pancreas and Comet laid on top of the dog. I mean, he was a 35-pound corgi. He was a big dog. And this windhound probably only weighed that much. But she's tall and leggy. And the person was just so grateful so, you know, that is when you're letting your dog be fully who he is and seeing the expression of what his potential is. And it's so compelling. I mean, he's he's worked with dolphins. He's worked with horses. We had a quite difficult horse at the barn and people were afraid to be around him. And he had been at the track and he had a place where his skull had had a fracture. Um, so he was a great candidate for cranial work. And Comet would lay underneath of him. And it was really scary because this horse was so, so hard to work with that I was afraid Comet would be squished. But he would lay under that horse and the horse would just fall asleep. And sometimes I'd work in the horse's stall and he would lay down and Comet would lay next to him. Aww. It was just remarkable, the relationship between the two of them. So these kinds of stories show people the limitless potential of animals and help them understand them in a new way. And that is really what I wanted to convey with this book. Um, and one of the people that um, read it was telling me that they were particularly touched by the parts of the book where the animals uh, crossed the Rainbow Bridge because the spirituality and the depth of understanding that is in those pages, I think, helps a lot of people when their animals are crossing and they don't know um, what's going on. I personally have had a near-death experience, so that's uh, lent some enlightenment uh, to the passing of my animals and I think it, um, I think that part of the book is also helpful to people. And then the hopefulness of another animal. I, I've never gotten another horse after my horse died a few years ago. But, you know, there's always the corgi and what I'm doing with my next corgi and, you know, finding what they each like to do. This corgi loves to do dog dancing and he does rally and he does agility. Hmm. He does not do so much healing work because Comet did not want to teach him. And so <laughs> it's been a lot harder to teach this dog to do seizure alert <laughs> work, having to teach him myself than have a dog teach him. Right. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> right. When, when energy is, is an animal's language, you know, it's, it's a totally different uh, teaching and learning style. Right. <laughs> yeah. We have, to, we have to step out of our heads to be able to access right. that information. So the book was um, an Amazon bestseller when it first came out, and I was very happy to see that lots of people wanted it. And uh, I've also had the great privilege of working with Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's a famous cancer doctor, um, as well as Linda Tallington. And Penelope Smith wrote a comment about the book and loved it. So I've been able, um, she was one of the pioneering animal communicators. So I've been very, very fortunate to work with some of the I mean, shining stars in the world of animals over the course of my lifetime 
And a lot of their lessons are also reflected in the book. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so I, I know that a big part of your work with um, working directly with animals as well as their persons um, and you also teach workshops so people can access these skills. I know I know things are a little bit on hold right now with the COVID-19 situation. Um, do you have any workshops planned for the fall or a little bit kind of um, post-summer that you have coming up? Or is everything a little bit uh, up in the air around I have workshops? been reluctant to make any upcoming plans. Uh, for Understandable. The fall. <laughs> um, because, you know, people, when I teach a craniosacral class, I don't do it very often. Um, and I've been teaching them here in Northampton uh, lately because I have a large house and I can accommodate the person here and the airport is nearby and I can pick them up and I have people come internationally. And so I'd hate to schedule a class and have us not be able to travel. So I don't have a class like that scheduled right now. Um, I do a fair number of Tellington T-Touch workshops, sometimes at Leading the Way Dog Training in Florence. Um, she's had me come there. I do quite a few for different rescue groups and breed groups. Um, and I also teach them at my house. I've been working with Linda. She's coming to the East Coast, as she does every year, to teach a dog workshop in Maryland. And I've been talking to her about doing uh, a dog or a horse workshop in our area when she's here and co-teaching with her. Um, but primarily what I'm focusing now on more is doing distance work with animals. I do distance cranial sessions and something called emotion code work, which releases trapped emotions um, and can be really profoundly helpful to connect with an animal um, and also to help them integrate better into your household. So um, that's been my focus currently because it's just too difficult to know when is a safe time to schedule something. Absolutely. I do a fair number of workshops at pet expos and travel up and down the East Coast to different pet expos as well. And all, all that um, kind of, uh, all that information is also on your website, is posted on your website as well? That's right. My website is sallymorganpt.com. And then I have several Facebook pages, Sally Morgan PT CST and Craniosacral Therapy for Animals. And I do Facebook Lives um, almost every morning. I've been doing them throughout the COVID situation. I just wrapped up four days of doing yoga with your dog. I saw fun. I saw some of the <laughs> I saw some of the posts that you had done and I was like, oh Sally has beautiful purple hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have purple hair. And that's from Bernie Siegel. I when I uh, I went to him when I got diagnosed with cancer and I shaved my hair off. I didn't know if it's too painful to watch it fall out and I got a purple wig at this wonderful store that used to be in Northampton. And it looked so much like my real hair. People just thought it was my real hair. I actually it looked better than my real hair. And when I went to the meeting, it took a long time to get there and I couldn't find it. Simsbury, Connecticut's a little bit off the beaten track. <laughs> and when I walked into the meeting, Bernie said, he stopped the whole meeting. I was like an hour late. And he said, why is your hair purple? Ah. And I put my hand on my head and I said, uh, it's my crown chakra. And he said, okay, you're not going to die. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's funny. And purple is this very spiritual color. And a lot of times people that are ready to cross the rainbow bridge will be gravitating towards purple. Interesting. But it also can be like Bernie shaved his head for years and people used to think it was because he wanted to be like his bald headed um, cancer patients. But in fact, it was because he wanted to be closer to God like a monk. And so my purple hair is um, a way to remind me constantly of my connection to spirit and to stay out of ego so that I can do the work that I'm here to do. Oh, that's so yes, beautiful. I have purple hair. So I, I have my it. Facebook live posts. They all end up on YouTube eventually under conversations with a Corgi. 
And we also have a YouTube page called Corgis Can Dance, where we posted some of our dog dancing, which is quite fun. Oh, that sounds great. So we're coming to the top of the hour. Um, Sally, do you have any last words of wisdom that you'd like to throw out into the universe about anything? I want to encourage people to learn how to listen to the whispers of their animals, to soften the way you are with them and and try to understand what they're trying to show you through their posture, their body language, their breathing, tension patterns, their eyes, their ears, their tail position. Really look at your animal and try to see what they have to say. And you will be so inspired and touched by what you'll find. And if your animal isn't doing what you'd like it to do, so often there's pain in their body and they have no other way to tell us. Um, And in fact, in the Whole Dog Journal recently, there was an article that said, if you have a serious behavior problem, try giving the dog a painkiller for like a week or two and see if the behavior doesn't resolve. And that was a pretty interesting approach. I mean, there's many other ways to work with that that I do. Um, But we can learn a lot from our animals and we really need to honor the role of animals in our lives and really learn to listen to what they're trying to tell us because they have so much knowledge um, and it's so joyful to be able to share that with them. Hmm, That's lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Energy Matters today and and sharing a little bit about your world and all the beautiful skills that you've learned and developed and relationships that you've had with with animals along the way that have taught you some of these things as well. Um, So so thank you for for being here and, and being present. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so have a great weekend, everyone, and be well.